pray, and then we'll dive in together. God, as we approach John chapter 15, just such a rich passage. Oh God, I pray that you would arrest our hearts with the beauty of Jesus. But I pray that you would help us to see his immeasurable worth and to savor it so that we might walk out of here changed. So God, we need your help. Lord, I pray that you would protect our hearts from assuming John 15 to be experienced in our lives just because we're familiar with it. And Lord, that you might meet us here in a fresh way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to recall a moment or a season in your life in which you were utterly exhausted. I don't mean just a little bit tired or a little bit fatigued, but completely spent. Like the thought of doing one more thing, adding one more thing to your calendar or schedule might push you over the edge. I'm sure some of us are thinking about maybe a a physical exhaustion, a time in our lives which physically we were drained. Maybe others of us are thinking about a a mental or an emotional exhaustion period of time in our lives. It seems like the hardest seasons of life, what we would consider to be a trial or a time of testing, is when the physical exhaustion, the mental and the emotional exhaustion are interconnected. I know it's true in my own life. When I've gone through those kinds of seasons, they seem to be connected in some way that absolutely drains me. I've also noticed in my life when I go through those seasons that that type of exhaustion, that type of testing reveals the condition of my heart. Those kinds of seasons, I think, have the ability uh, to even choke out the spiritual fruit and the spiritual growth that God wants to do in and through me. And yet the reality is, is that those kinds of seasons typically are not one and done. It's not like we go through a hard season and then we never go through any type of hard season ever again. It seems like life just gets harder. It seems like life is going from one exhaustion to the next. feels like life, you're either in a storm or a storm is coming. And so the question this morning that I want to propose as we look at John chapter 15 is not how do we get through those seasons, But how do we spiritually thrive through those seasons? How do we get to that place spiritually where no matter what circumstances are in our lives, we're going to be producing spiritual fruits? I think that's the question that Jesus is trying to answer in John chapter 15. What does spiritual vitality look like and how does one experience it? Remember, uh, at this time in John chapter 15, Jesus is still with his 11 disciples They are still just a few hours away from Jesus leaving them and being crucified on a cross. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at how shell-shocked the disciples probably were at hearing the news that Jesus is going to depart from them, and where he goes, they cannot follow. And we've looked at maybe the emotional condition of the disciples who they've been with Jesus physically for three years now. This is the promised Messiah. We've seen all the miracles, and yet Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave you guys. On top of that, we've learned that they've been stunned at the news that one of the disciples is about to betray him and that Peter himself is about to deny him three times. And so some of the emotions that they're experiencing are emotions that we experience, confusion, despair, discouragement, anxiety, fear. All of these things Jesus is well aware of. And so at this point in time, he's trying to help his disciples not just get through his departure, but he's trying to help them spiritually 
thrive through his departure. And it all begins in verse 1, where Jesus says that I am the true vine. The connection between chapters 14 and 15 is really, really important. In fact, if you guys want to lower down that screen and show the map, I just want to show us where we are at this point in time um, in uh, John chapter 15. And what you guys should see uh, behind me here is that if you look at chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, this is really just all one long conversation, okay? And at the end of chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, let us rise and go there. So the question is, well, where, where are they going? Well, we know from chapter 18 that where they're headed is the Kidron Valley where the Garden of Gethsemane is, okay? So at this point in time, they, they've been in the upper room. And so in chapter 15, they begin making their way all the way to the Kindred Valley, which is about 1.2 miles away. And many believe that Jesus is having this long conversation with his disciples of chapter 15, 16, and 17 on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now that's important uh, because on their way from the upper room, the most likely route that they took was past the temple here. And so as they're making their way, you guys can uh, move the screen back up, they're passing the temple, and on the front doors of the temple is this enormous golden symbol of a vine. And the vine was actually the symbol of Israel. It's kind of like how um, America's symbol or sign is an eagle. Well, for Israel, it was the vine. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's vine or God's vineyard. When you think about Isaiah 5 or Psalm chapter 80, it was God's intent to use the nation of Israel as this vine to be a blessing to bear fruit to all the nations of the world. So most likely, Jesus is taking his 11 disciples from the upper room all the way to the Kindred Valley where the Garden of Gethsemane is. They're passing the temple, and, and Jesus is maybe even pointing there, and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, but you are the branches. Now, this is an important statement because this is the seventh and final I am statement that John highlights. And yet there's more to it than just what we see on the surface. See, for the disciples to hear that they're not the vine, but they're the branches probably brought confusion to them. As good Jewish boys growing up and, and now Jewish men, they were told that Israel is the vine. They're not the branches. So what is Jesus doing here with this seventh I am statement? I think Jesus is doing at least two things. The first, Jesus is declaring once again that he is the greater Israel. Okay, he has come to replace the role of Israel as, as kind of the, the purpose of God for the nations and do what Israel could not do. And we've seen that throughout John's gospel of Jesus alluding to that, that Jesus has come and, and unlike Israel has lived in complete obedience, Jesus is bearing fruit, a type of fruit that won't dry up. Jesus has come and, and as the vine will actually graft in the Gentiles and create kind of the new people of God for Jews and Gentiles. But secondly, I think Jesus is using this powerful image to further explain the significance of John chapter 14 of the Holy Spirit residing in us. See, Jesus has been, again, this is one long conversation, and the disciples are hearing this kind of on the fly. 
Like we read these passages and we kind of dwell on it. We've got commentaries about it. And we have time to kind of process all that Jesus has said. Well, for Jesus, they're kind of strolling through Jerusalem and he's trying to further explain the significance of what he has said in John chapter 14. And so John 15, Jesus is essentially answering two questions. One, how do you experience all that I've said in John chapter 14 and what will result in your life when you experience it? Remember, Jesus' aim is to help the disciples spiritually thrive through his departure, not just survive. And it begins by using this powerful imagery. So the way we're going to approach this passage is we're going to look at, at the spiritual fruit. What are some things that we can learn from Jesus about what it means to produce spiritual fruits in our lives. Here's the first one I want to point out, is that spiritual fruit involves pruning. It involves pruning. In verse 2, Jesus clearly explains the role of the Father. The Father is this vine dresser or the gardener. And there are two things that Jesus points out that the Father does. The first is he takes those who are not producing fruit and he removes them from the vine. And he does this to both distinguish who the true Christians are from the non-Christians, but also to create more room for the vibrant, fruit-bearing Christians to produce more fruit in their lives. And then secondly, the second role that the Father has in this imagery is that the Father is the one that does the pruning. Now, if you've, if you've read this a couple times, maybe a dozen times, you almost lose the significance of this. Because if you try to read this maybe in, in a fresh way, like at first glance, if you're looking at this and it's saying that the Christians who are bearing fruit, the Christians who are thriving spiritually, you would assume that the Father's response to that would be just to add some water or to add maybe some sunlight or some different nutrients. But yet Jesus says that the Father actually prunes them. And pruning sounds painful. Pruning almost sounds corrective. What, what, is, what does he mean by pruning here? Well, pruning is the process of trimming. That for the gardener, he, what he has in mind here is to improve the quality of the fruit. And so he's going to look at the branches. He's going to look at what's broken, dead, or damaged. And he's going to remove those things in order to remove hindrances to the life of the fruits. Now, what does that mean spiritually for us? Well, how can we apply this to our own uh, relationships with the Lord? Worth a couple things to keep in mind when you think about the spiritual pruning process of God. Here's one thing to keep in mind, is that pruning actually creates space for spiritual fruit in our lives. A part of the purpose of why God prunes his fruit-bearing followers is to create space in order for more fruit to be produced in our lives or for a deeper quality of fruit to be produced in our lives. That sometimes God looks at our lives and, and thinks, man, there, there's no room here for, for fruit to be, uh, to, to be grown in this person's life. So I'm going to prune some stuff so there's more space in order for love and joy and peace and patience to be produced in the life of the believer. Or he looks at the life of a believer and says, yeah, there's love there, there's joy there, there's peace but I want to create a deeper sense of the, of the fruit there. And so I'm going to prune some things in that person's life in order to create more space. See, sometimes we say, man, I, I wish I had more fruit in my life. Have you ever said that? 
Like, I wish I, I experienced the presence and the love of God more tangibly. And more often than not, the reason why there's not more fruit in our lives is because the Holy Spirit's looking around and saying, there's no room in here. Like, it's, it's too crowded in your heart. There's, there's sin here. There are distractions. There, there are otherworldly things. I can't possibly produce more fruit because there's no room. And so part of the role of the Holy Spirit that takes up residence in the heart of a believer is to help the Father kind of even prune out some things that are going on in our lives. If you look at verse 3 here, Jesus seems to be suggesting that the fruit-bearing Christians— are those who have already been cleansed, which makes sense. They're, they are those who have already been justified. And we know at the moment of our justification, God has removed the power of sin from our lives, so we're no longer enslaved. And yet throughout the rest of our lives, we're battling the, the presence of sin in our lives. And so part of the, the sanctification process of God, one aspect of that is the pruning process that as the Holy Spirit looks around and sees that things are a little bit too crowded here, out of God's sovereignty and his his goodness for you, he will start to prune and remove things for more space for that fruit to be produced. And so pruning creates more space for more fruit. Secondly here, another thing I want to point out is that pruning is painful, but it is necessary. There's no way around this. The trimming process of sanctification can be hard, difficult, and painful. And when you think about it, when you have things in your life that, that aren't matching up to the things of God, you have maybe sinful thoughts, desires, or actions. God being the good vine dresser, the good gardener, is not just going to address the symptoms. He's going to dig beneath the surface and get at the root of it. And, and if you've been there before, that is a painful process. Like God, in his love for us, will use the discipline of the Lord, like Hebrews 12, in order to trim and to prune. God will sometimes use the consequences of sin in order to prune things out of our lives. You think about David committing adultery with Bathsheba. One of the consequences of their sin is that the firstborn of their son died. And yet the, the pruning process, we, we tend to only think, okay, God only prunes when I have sin. That's not necessarily true. God will actually sometimes send different trials and suffering in our lives that have nothing to do with with sin in our lives, but he's allowing suffering and trials to take place in our lives in order to grow our dependency upon him, in order to maybe remove some distractions or maybe some neutral things in our lives so that more fruit can be produced. And yet, nonetheless, the pruning process of God is painful and it is difficult. There's a character in uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series named Ustus. And in one of the books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you get to know Ustus a little bit more and how immature and selfish he is. And there's a scene there where he kind of finds himself in this cave. And he not only finds himself in this cave, but he has found out that he actually has turned into a dragon. And if you've read this book, you know what this scene um, is getting at. But he looks at his scales and he tries to remove the scales himself, but he can't. And then there's this lion that shows up. And throughout C.S. Lewis's books here, um, the the lion refers to the Christ figure. And he helps remove the scales off of Eustace. And he describes it this way. He says, I was afraid at the lion's claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. 
the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And I was thinking about that scene because I'm going through some of the Chronicles of Narnia with my girls. And like that is the trimming process of God as he prunes sin from us. Like it's painful, it hurts, but God is the only one that is powerful enough in order to dig deep enough in our hearts to remove some of the sin and some of the idolatry that we find there. There are times when we think we can do it, and yet so often we fail. And trusting in God means remaining in this pruning process and not resisting it because we know that it's necessary. Well, another thing about this pruning process I want to point out is that God's hand is never closer than when he's pruning. Even the most severe forms of pruning, when it feels like God is most distant, that's actually when God is probably closest. And when you think about it for a moment, think about who it is that God prunes, right? It's the Christians who are actually bearing fruits. When you think about Hebrews 12, about how God disciplines those whom he loves. Like God is pruning only those that are his children, those that he loves, those that are are bearing fruits. You should probably be more concerned when you're not experiencing the pruning hand of God. It reminds me of playing basketball. We always talked about as players, when, when the coach stopped yelling at you, that's when you need to be concerned. Like that's when the coach kind of has given up on you and like you're not going to develop as a player. You're not going to listen to me, so I'm going to stop investing in you. But when coach continues to yell at you, that's kind of a form of encouragement because he's trying to shape and he's trying to grow you. I think that's the same thing with the pruning hand of God in our lives, that God's pruning may pain us, but he'll never harm us. He's like this good surgeon who might inflict some pain on our lives, but it's for our good. God's the good gardener. He's not randomly trimming and pruning things from our lives. He's intentionally pruning things, not to cause us misery, but to give us everlasting joy. And when we understand the purpose of God, I think we'll declare along with the psalmist in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statues. And so we see the role of pruning in bearing fruit. But not only that, another thing that we see Jesus say here is that spiritual fruit reveals your spiritual condition. Now we'll come back to verses four and five towards the end, but I want you to notice the contrast that Jesus provides in verses six and eight. In verse six, we see that the one who is not abiding in Christ, the one who is not bearing fruit, is then tossed and thrown into the fire. And on the other hand, though, verse 8 is the one who is abiding in Christ, the one who is bearing fruit, and thus is proving that they belong to Jesus. And yet in both cases, both of these individuals, their lives are producing something, and they're producing either spiritual fruit or sinful fruits. And based on what they're producing, you can see where they are spiritually. See, the evidence of where you are spiritually is in the fruit that your life is producing. It's not in what you claim. It's not in what other people say about you. It's not even in the religious activity that that you participate in. Remember Judas? 
You just spent three years with Jesus. He did all kinds of ministry, all kinds of religious activity, and yet he didn't have the type of fruit of John chapter 15, 8. In other words, think about it this way. Think about if you were in the courtroom of God for a moment and you stood before a jury and you had to convince them that you are a real follower of Jesus and and all you could use as evidence is the fruit in your life, what would you point to that would convince the jury that you are a follower of Jesus? What, what, What would point out that would say, yes, that makes me a Christian because of the fruit that's in my life? Now, if you're tracking with me this morning, you should be asking the question, well, what is fruit? Like if if Judas didn't have this kind of fruit, then then what is the kind of fruit that proves that you're really a disciple? Well, maybe a passage that pops into your mind about fruit is actually Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. See, this is what Paul says about fruit here. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now here, Paul also does a contrast. And I think if you put John 15 with Galatians 5, you could essentially say that Galatians 5, 19 through 21 is John chapter 15, verse 6. And then on the other hand, you could say that Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, is John chapter 15, verse 8. And so the challenge for us this morning, the challenge for you, is when you kind of do a self-assessment this morning, and you look at the, the fruit that's being produced in your life, does your life look closer to John, or Galatians 5, 19 through 21, or does it look closer to Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23? Now, I'm not talking about perfection here. Maybe think about it through, like, themes in your life. When you think about major themes that are being demonstrated in how you live your life, do you have themes of of envy and impurity and idolatry and, and jealousy? Or do you have themes in your life of love and joy, and peace, and patience, and so on. Like when you're standing in that courtroom before God, before that jury, what are you pointing to and saying, yes, this is the fruit of God in my life? Look, just to connect this to to John chapter 14, because remember, this is one conversation. If you look at the Spirit taking up residence in your life, like just to state the obvious, this is the fruit of the Spirit, right? This isn't the fruit of, that you're producing. This isn't the fruit of Chris Beals or the fruit of John Smith. This is the spirit of the living God who is living in and through you, who is producing the fruit in Galatians 5. I point that out because sometimes we confuse spiritual fruit with religious conformity. Like sometimes we say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm that true disciple of John chapter 15, 8, and as you stand in the courtroom of God and you're pointing to things in your life, 
what sometimes we point to are just things that we've kind of molded the external of our lives around as we follow the rules of Christianity. And so my, my challenge for us this morning is to consider what fruit in your life is the fruit of the Spirit of God and not just things that you've conformed to on the external, right? See, for Jesus, this is the link between John 14 and John 15 is that the Spirit is producing fruit in your life. And a key difference is that the fruit that's being produced, it's not based on your circumstances, it's not based on, on how you feel. It's not based on, on you getting your own way every time. Or if you're in a good mood, you're going to produce the fruit. But if you're in a bad mood, you're not going to produce fruit. See, the Spirit of God, when he's producing fruit in your life, he doesn't care what's going on in your life. He doesn't care if you're exhausted, if you're going through a trial. That fruit is going to be produced in and through your life. And so just take Galatians 5 for a moment. The Spirit of God is going to produce love even around difficult and challenging people. The Spirit of God is going to produce joy even in the midst of trials. The Spirit of God is going to produce patience even when your schedule gets blown up and you have to be flexible. Like the Spirit of God is going to produce kindness and gentleness even around people that have hurt the Spirit of God is going to produce self-control even in the hardest of temptations. Look, in the midst of all of this, as we wrestle with leaning and allowing the Spirit of Christ live in and through us, you'll notice that you're not relying on your own willpower like religious conformity wants you to do. You're relying more and more on the Spirit's presence and power in your life. You see the difference the question is, how can we produce or how can this kind of fruit come out of our lives? Well, that leads us to the third aspect of this passage, and that is that spiritual fruit is produced only through abiding in Jesus. I just want to put all my cards on the table here this morning. Spiritual fruit is actually not the main point of this passage. All right, even though Fruit shows up six times in these 11 verses. It's not the main point. The main point is abiding in Jesus, which shows up 10 times in these 11 verses. Furthermore, did you know that we're not commanded at all in this passage to produce fruit? There's no exhortation to do that. But what we are commanded to do is to abide in the vine who is Jesus. See, what Jesus is saying here is that the link between the Holy Spirit's presence in your life and bearing fruit is abiding in Jesus. Look at what he says in verses four through five. And just, just pretend for a moment that you've never read these verses, okay? Just try to, try to pretend that you're hearing these words in a fresh way. Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Those are stunning words from Jesus. Jesus is saying that the key to producing fruit in your life is abiding in him. Look, I'm not, I'm not one uh, as, as a pastor to, uh, to, to use props up here on stage. I don't think I've ever done that. 
But if you could imagine for a moment, if I brought up this branch that I cut off from, from, a, from a vine, let's say I bring that up here, and I say to you, how many of us believe that this branch that's been cut off from the vine will actually produce fruit? Like none of us would say, yeah, that thing's going to produce fruit. We'd say it has no shot at all. We would say it doesn't matter how hard that branch works at producing fruit, it's not going to produce fruit. We would say, it doesn't matter what kind of strategy of growth that that branch has, it's not going to produce fruit. But we would also say, it doesn't matter if you lay that branch down next to some other fruits, that it's going to magically produce fruit. It doesn't matter how close it is to the fruit. If it's not connected to the vine, it will not produce fruits. That that branch has no life in itself. It is utterly and completely dependent on the vine for life and fruitfulness. Look, we, we understand that physically. Like, we get that. But the challenge is, is do we understand the implications of what Jesus is saying spiritually? Like, do we understand that the most important aspect of our relationships with God is our ability to abide and remain in Jesus? It's not in your hard work. It's not in your obedience. It's not in your moral performance before Jesus. The key aspect of your relationship with God is abiding in him. Here's the challenge, though. Is that more assumed in your life, or is that a reality in your life? Is that experience realized for you, or has this concept of abiding in Jesus just kind of assumed because you call yourself a Christian, you're at church on Sunday, and this is just kind of the things that you do. See, one way to kind of maybe know is like if you're having this conversation in your head this, this morning where you're saying to yourself, okay, Chris, we get it. Like abide in Christ that produces fruit, but what else do you have for me today? Like give us some strategies, give us some how-tos for producing fruit in our lives. It can't just be abiding in Jesus. See, look, I had those thoughts this, this week as I was prepping for this sermon. I, I was looking at this amazing text, and I was thinking, oh, Jesus, that's so good. Yeah, abide in you, and I'll produce fruit. But what else do you have for me? Like, give me some things for me to do. Give me some, some things that I can perform for you. Give me some things that I can, I can demonstrate before you. And yet Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus' focus here is abiding in him that that is the secret here to both experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit from John 14 to producing fruit in your life. And so let's look at this word for a moment, this Greek word for abide. It literally means to make your home within. It means to, to remain in, to live in, to plant yourself in. It seems like what Jesus is saying here is that your consistency in producing public fruits will only go as far as the intimacy of your abiding in Jesus. That your ability to produce fruit will only go as far as your living and resting in Jesus. That this idea of abiding in him is, is this continual dependence, this reliance upon all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for you, and it's not moving beyond what Jesus has done, but it's moving deeper into what he has done. 
Look at verse 9 with me. This is an astounding verse. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is a crazy statement by Jesus. Think of, of the Father's love for the Son for a moment. It's a love that we cannot comprehend. It's a perfect, everlasting love. And what Jesus is saying here in this verse is he says, make your home in that kind of love. See, what this verse shows us is that abiding in Christ has less to do with doing something for God, and it has more to do with resting in something that God has already done. It's resting in his love, resting in what Jesus has already accomplished. See, verse 9, how has Jesus demonstrated his love for us? Jesus has demonstrated his love for us by, by dying on the cross and taking our place. And so Jesus has demonstrated his great love for us by wrestling down your sinful and prideful heart and giving you the gift of faith. Now that's important because what faith does is faith opens the blindness of our hearts in order to see all that Jesus has done for us on the cross and for us to conclude, he did that for me. He did that for my sin. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world. Faith allows you to conclude all that he has done. He did it for me because I am the rebel against his cause. And when you have your faith upon Jesus, and not only, he not only removes your sin, but all of his perfect righteousness and obedience now is yours. All of it is transferred into your account. So God looks at you. Colossians 3 says you are hidden in Jesus. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus and accepts you and loves you and approves of you into his family. That's what he's done. That's what verse 9 has been demonstrated for us. And so the reality of abide in that doesn't mean that you move on from the gospel. It means that you grow deeper into the gospel. That when you realize my faith has placed me in Jesus, all of the promises in the Bible are yours in him. And it's taking those promises and it's pressing them deeper into your heart and into your life. Look, real fruit and real growth doesn't begin with being told what to do for God. It begins by being told what God has already done for you in Jesus. You look at all throughout the New Testament, right believing precedes right behaving. That we grow not by moving beyond the gospel, but moving deeper within it. Another pastor put it that the gospel is not the diving board into the pool of Christianity, but the gospel is the pool itself that we swim in and that we have our life in. And I think that is the key to abiding in Jesus. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what about verse 10? Doesn't verse 10 say that all of this is dependent upon our obedience? Well, it's a good question, but if you look at it, Jesus is not saying that the reward of your obedience is his love. What Jesus is saying in verse 10 is that because he's already loved you, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. God's love fuels our obedience that then connects us to his love. That when you choose to obey and keep his commands, you can think about it this way. You're, you're clearing out space in your heart 
for more of his love to come into your heart and into your love. That because you didn't choose disobedience and sin, you chose obedience, you're clearing space for you to actually abide in his love all the more. See, when you're abiding in Jesus and the intimacy of your love is growing, you're going to see some things show up in your heart and in your life. You're going to see a, a greater dependency upon Jesus. You're going to see a greater love and affection for Jesus. And you're going to see obedience to his commands increase in your life. I mean, if you look at, at what Jesus does in verses 7 through 11, Jesus is describing someone who is abiding in him. Someone who's abiding in him in verse 7 has a desperation for the words of Jesus. Like there is a dependency upon the word of God because his words now abide in you. And so you don't view the word of God as just good advice or icing on the cake, but there is a dependency and a desperation to be filled with the word of God and to live it out. Abiding in Jesus in verse 7 also impacts our prayer lives, that because his words are abiding in us, that's going to shape what we pray for and how we pray. That if we're praying in Jesus' name, we're going to start to pray for what Jesus' name actually stands for and what the kingdom of God is all about. You're going to see the intimacy of your prayers deepen. You're going to slowly put away that, that list of the things that you want God to fix in your life as if he's kind of Santa Claus, and you're going to have a deeper intimacy and awareness of his love as you pray. Even looking at verse 8, you see that the, the glory of God is being shown in your life because you're abiding in him. And so the more that you abide in him, the more that you have a hunger for God's glory in and through your life. You want the spotlight to be upon him. In verse 9 and verse 11, you see that God's love and God's joy is satisfying your heart. See, Jesus, I think, is trying to paint a picture for the disciples who are going through all kinds of emotions. They're about to go through the hardest season of their life, and Jesus is giving them a snapshot of someone who is growing spiritually, doesn't have Jesus as a piece of their life, but Jesus is their life. I've used this imagery before, but if, if you think about your life like a, like a pie, Sometimes what we do is we have these different pieces represent different aspects of our life. Like we've got our, our work pie, our family uh, piece, our, our relationships piece, and, and Jesus might be the biggest piece. He might be the biggest slice of our lives. And yet the reality of abiding in Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus is the largest slice in the pie of your life. It means that Jesus is the filling of every piece, every aspect of your life. Abiding in Jesus is not just, all right, I'm doing my devotions here in the morning, and then I'm going to go throughout my day, and that's not going to impact me at all. No, abiding in Jesus is this continual reality of all that Jesus is for you all throughout the day as you live within the Spirit of God. Look, remember, Jesus' hope for the disciples is no matter what they go through, that they will not let their hearts be troubled, that he wants them to grow through what they're about to experience. And Jesus' hope is the same for us today. And the key is abiding in him. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise for this wonderful passage. God, we thank you for just the challenge it is against our own flesh because, God, we want to perform for you. 
And Lord, some of that has a good motivation, and yet other times it has a, a, a selfish motivation where we want to perform for you because we want a part in our, our justification to, to earn your love. So God, I pray that this passage would just continue to unearth, Lord, just false motivations for our desire to obey you. God, that you would help us to never get over the beauty of Jesus, to want to abide in it, to remain in it, and to never get enough of who Jesus is in our lives. God, help us to be a church who remains in Jesus and what he has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.